And as you guys make your way to Hebrews chapter 4, uh, you remember by now that the theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. And so we've looked at is uh, week after week uh, who and what Jesus is better than, and the answer is uh, all things. But re- remember with me that this letter is being written to uh, Jewish Christians, They're those who believe. In fact, what the writer uh, referred to them as in verse 1 of chapter 3 is uh, partakers of the heavenly calling, holy brethren. So this letter is being written to those who uh, have believed in Jesus, and yet because of, in large part, persecution that's befallen them, they're considering turning back. They're thinking about going back uh, to the tradition, back to the old ways, back to what we knew before and that was a comfortable uh, fit. And as they're considering these things, no doubt all the Old Testament heroes would have come up. I mean, it wasn't so bad. We had prophets we didn't listen to. We had angels who gave messages that we ignored. Uh, We had all the law. We even had Moses, right, who we uh, disobeyed as well. And so we had all these old things from the past. Uh, Surely those were good enough. But the writer is going to go to great lengths to show us that uh, Jesus is better. And we see him at the very beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 1, sharing that Jesus is better than the prophets who were the mouthpiece of God. And now we have Jesus as the mouthpiece, the one who can communicate the word of God that can communicate to us directly. We see that Jesus is better than the angels, those who were believed to be messengers of God. Think of all the times the angels showed up throughout the Old Testament bringing a message, even on into the New Testament. But the reality is Jesus is better than they who were created. And then in chapters 3 and 4, we're now looking at Jesus being better than Moses. And that's important to understand from their perspective is Moses was the embodiment of the law. That all that existed in the law, Moses was the guy to them. But what we know is that Jesus is better than Moses. He's also even better than the law itself. And by his own words, what he told us in Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 in reference to the law itself, he says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. And so Jesus Christ, isn't, uh, he didn't come to do away with the law or to destroy it, but he actually came to be the fulfillment of it. And in every possible way, through his first coming and also in his second coming, he is going to fulfill all the law. It will by no means uh, pass away. But in the middle of all this that we studied this last week, and it'll continue on, is this theme of rest that exists. That for Moses, he was supposed to bring the children of Israel into the promised land, this picture of rest. But because of unbelief, they were unable to enter into the rest. They did not believe, and so instead they put their trust, their belief in things that were unreliable. And this is really the warning for us, is to put uh, our trust in the one who can deliver, not in all these other things that are unreliable. But so often what happens is we don't uh, take God's word for it. Instead, we want to put our trust in things like the government or in relationships or even worse, the absolute worst of all, uh, me, myself. I want to put my trust in uh, my own abilities and what I can do. And the reality is uh, I am uh, completely and totally unreliable. I can hold it together for a while. I can look like I've got it going on. But what I know about me is uh, I can't trust uh, me. And so we begin to trust ourselves. And so as a result, uh, fear 
anxiety, depression, worry, concern, all these things are soon to follow because we put our trust in something that is unreliable. Now, all that leads us to chapter 4, verse 1, where we read, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. And so immediately in verse 1, the word of fear is used. And it's almost like a question. What is it that we should fear? Because for these uh, Jews, they're standing now on the precipice of going across into the promised land, but they were afraid. Fear kept them from entering into the rest. And what the writer's starting off with here in verse 1 is, what we should fear is not uh, giants or things that seem so terrifying, but what we should actually fear is tempting God. Not believing God and his word. And this is what actually is going to cause Israel to not be able to enter the rest. For verse 2, indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. And so he mentions the gospel here in verse 2. And what you know by now is that the word gospel just means good news. It's good news being communicated. So for these who could have entered into the promised land, they had been given a good word by God through Abraham. 400 years before this very day when they were getting ready to cross in, but because they did not believe it, they weren't able to enter into that good news. They had what I would call a grasshopper mentality. They said, there's giants in the land, and to us, we're, to them, we're, we're nothing more than grasshoppers. We're insufficient. I have all these shortcomings. There's no way I can have victory in this area. And so as a result, they were unable to enter into the rest. Instead, they depended upon what they could do and their own abilities. And what it always leads us to when we have a grasshopper mentality is legalism. I begin to build little ways that I think I can accomplish God's will and what he wants. I can be blessed if I just work my way into this relationship. And so legalism is sure to ensue. That's exactly what they were tempted to go back into, back into the law. But here's the thing. Um, God's promises were based on if they believed. That's what the writer is communicating, is that the gospel was communicated to them but they did not profit because they didn't mix faith uh, with the good news. It, it, it was of no use. And the same is true with us when we look at promises uh, throughout Scripture. If we do not believe God and his word, uh, they don't do us a doggone bit of good. Promises like uh, Philippians chapter 4 verse 19. I'll hit a few highlights for you to consider. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Uh, continue to Romans 8.28. This is one that many of you have highlighted in your Bible uh, where the Apostle Paul writes that, uh, and we know that all things work together for good of those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. So if uh, I'm still alive, I still have breath, God's not done dealing in my situation. But the reality is if I don't take him at his word, then what good did that actually do me in my life? In Matthew 28, as Jesus was uh, speaking to the disciples after his resurrection, he made it very clear that I am not going to leave you. But when I don't believe that, I feel abandoned and all alone. They, these promises are not activated because my faith isn't in them. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 
to put a bow on this, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, the message of the cross doesn't change. What's the thing that changed? It's do you believe it? Do you believe it? That's the activator of the message of the cross. Jesus rose. He gave us the ability to have eternal life with him. That's a fact. But if you don't believe it, it sounds like complete and total foolishness. And you know this if you've tried to witness to anyone. They look at you like you've got a third head. Like, what is wrong with you? How can you believe a a guy who died and supposedly resurrected thousands of years ago can, can transform you from the inside out? And what you have to say is, look, um, because you don't believe, it's foolishness. But if you could believe, uh, you would know it to be true just like I do. I'm proof. My testimony is, is proof that this is a reality. And so the gospel is activated when the good news is combined. It's mixed together uh, with faith. Another example of this would be in Acts chapter 12. And here in this uh, chapter of Acts The Apostle Peter's been thrown into jail because he's been sharing, you guessed it, the good news, the gospel message. And so the Romans have him, the Jews actually have him thrown into a Roman prison. And in this spot, he's sleeping between two Roman guards. Uh, Pete's got his head propped up against one of them. He's probably drooling on the dude's shoulders. They're there in the uh, cell together. And all at once, an angel comes and taps Pete on the shoulder. It says, hey, buddy, it's time to get up. It's time to go. We got to get out of here. And as he says that, the, the shackles fall off his hands and off his feet. And he stands up and he rises and he follows the angel out of the prison. But here's the thing. He didn't even realize it wasn't a dream until he got out in the street. But, but what I want to bring that to your attention for is, um, what if Peter just said, I'm good. I mean, this is a great dream, and you're a beautiful angel, but I am so tired right now. I'm just going to hang out here, wait for my sentence. It might be a death sentence. I don't know, but I am good and comfortable right here, snuggled up between these two Roman soldiers. Um, The reality is, if he doesn't get up, he doesn't get to exit the prison. And the same is true for you and I. If we don't put feet to our faith, if we're not willing to, to to put faith mixed in with the gospel message, then we find ourselves shackled, trapped in this prison, unable uh, to escape, you see. Now we continue in verse 3. For who, having believed, do not enter that rest. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 6, since therefore it remains that there, excuse me, since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. So now, over these next several verses, we're going to see three different kinds of rest that can be obtained, uh, discussed. First of all, a practical rest. Secondly, a positional. And lastly, an eternal rest. And in this particular section, he's talking about a practical rest, speaking specifically of uh, the Sabbath. That 
And he takes them back to the time of creation. And what he says is, look, God created for six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. And he did so to be a pattern for them that they would know on the seventh day they could take a break, take a day off, take a rest. But for hundreds and then thousands of years, what the Jewish people did is they took God's Sabbath rest, what he had designed to give to them as a gift, and they began to do what uh, I so often do, figure out a way around it, a little loophole. They wrote this uh, thing called the Talmud, which was a commentary of the law to try to further describe what does God mean by rest? What constitutes as work? And they came up with things, plans like, hey, if you are going to leave your house, you can walk uh, so many feet from your home and it not be considered uh, work. You're still resting. You're still Sabbathing. And so what happens is in a household, they would take uh, furniture out of the living room, take a, an easy boy, and they would put it all the way at the edge of their property. And they would say, since that's a part of my house, my house now extends to the edge of my property so the line can be measured from my couch I moved all the way out so I can travel further. Now here's the thing. What were they really doing? They were finding loopholes to get out of the gift that God had given them. It was manifesting itself. It was working out as disobedience. But the point was, God gave them the Sabbath as a gift. And then they were trying to manipulate it to avoid the very gift God gave them. This is why, as Jesus is addressing the Pharisees in Mark chapter 2, he says, don't you understand that Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath? God had given them the Sabbath as a gift. God had shown them as a pattern of the Sabbath, the creation of six days and then a rest on the seventh, not because he was tired. God wasn't sitting in heaven and going, whoo, man, did you see those giraffes so worn out? The Himalayas really took it out of me. I mean, T-M-I-F, thank me, it's Friday. I am so worn out right now. Like, it, it no point in time was God tired. He did it as an example of completion, that his work was completed, and now it's a pattern, a gift for them to be able to enjoy. But in verse 6, this is important to note, he says here that since, they, uh, since it was preached to them, and they did not enter it because of disobedience, that their belief was actually manifesting itself now as disobedience, and the same will always be true in our lives. That what God desired for them was to enjoy the rest, but because they would not believe, it showed up as disobedience. Let me ask you a question, you that read the Old Testament. It's not so bad. I encourage you to check it out. Uh, But as you read through it, why did Judah have to spend 70 years in captivity? They were taken off in 586 B.C. by Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon for a period of time that was prophesied about. But why was that? Was it because of idolatry, child sacrifice, them uh, looking like all the lands of Canaan that they dispersed? Um, The answer is uh, not technically. What God actually said, and this is a, a beautiful promise he gave to them, was not only a Sabbath day of rest, but in the law, God actually gave them a Sabbath year of rest. Imagine this. They had to work for six years, but then on the seventh year, God said, if you trust me, if you believe me, I'm going to give you an entire year off, and the ground is going to just produce fruit. You're going to be able to eat and hang out, worship me, hang out with your family, this beautiful promise. But in uh, 490 years, the nation of Judah uh, observed a Sabbath year, uh, you guessed it, zero times. 
They never one time took God at his word and believed that he would provide. And so as a result, they were taken away into captivity. Their disobedience, their unbelief manifests itself in disobedience. There were all kinds of other things going on. But in Second Chronicles, I'll go back there for you. Uh, chapter 36, verse 20, he says, And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. Here it is in verse 21. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. What God said is, if you won't give the land a rest, I'm going to give it a rest from you. 70 years, this land is going to lay desolate for all the promises that you wouldn't see to fulfillment. I'm still going to fulfill them, but you're not going to get to enjoy it. Uh, unbelief caused a tremendous amount of unrest. And what God is trying to communicate through all this for us is that he desires to give us a rest practically. This is what he desires, actually, for the Sabbath. Whatever day you choose to make the Sabbath in your life, whatever that looks like for you, it's not about rules and regulations. It's about you obtaining a rest and just trusting him in his word. Now, he's going to move off of this uh, practical rest to a positional rest. In verse 7, we'll transition. And again, he designates a certain day, saying, In David, today, after such a long time, as it has been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. Verse 9, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. And so as the writer is writing to this very Hebrew audience, he knows that they're going to say, well, Moses wasn't able to enter the children into the rest, but what about Joshua? Joshua entered the promised land. Like, hey, guess what? I'm going to... Uh, preempt that, I'm going to talk about Joshua. Because if this was the only rest God was talking about, then why is it that he talked of another day? Joshua wasn't able to bring them into the positional rest that God had actually promised. And so he's not talking of the practical, but again of the positional. And here in verse 10, he summarizes it. He says, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. As we get the opportunity to enter into the positional rest of Christ, here's the beauty of it. It's no longer relying upon me and my works, but it's upon him and his works. And just, here's the parallel, just as God rested in his completed works, we can rest in the completed works of Christ. The work that he did, that he fulfilled when he said in John chapter 19 verse 30, it is finished. The work of salvation is complete. And so now I can rest knowing that I don't have to earn my salvation. And the issue with having to earn our salvation, it usually goes a little something like this. Um, Sunday morning, I hear something unbelievable from Pastor Brock. I mean, wow, that so impacted my life. I'm going to make a change. I'm going to go hard for Jesus. And Monday, I'm up 4.30 in the morning. God is going to bless me. I'm reading my Bible. I'm journaling. I'm praying. I'm singing all the way to work and back. Things are so good. God's going to bless me. 
Now, Tuesday rolls around. I don't get up quite as early. I don't have time for the prayer, but I got my Bible reading in. I got my journaling done. Jesus loves me, don't you know? Isn't it so great? Now, Wednesday, uh, I blow it. I, I don't even hear the alarm go off. I'm not able to read my Bible. I'm not able to journal. And, and now I'm on the lookout because what is God going to think of this? Like, I've blown it completely. By Thursday, I've gotten three calls from the school. My kid got in a fight. I get them home. I'm yelling at them. They're yelling at me. Shut your mouth! And now all of a sudden, I've lost all my Jesus. I can't wait for Sunday. I've blown it so bad. And none of this would have happened if I would have just read my Bible. Like, God would have blessed me. But now all these things have happened. My, I might lose my job. This might take place. And all these things because I didn't do my part to read my Bible like a good Christian. Here's the thing. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That God's grace is not about how hard you can work and what you can do. That it's not actually about you at all, sweetheart. <laughs> it's just not. My position is secure in Him because of what He did for me. I can rest in Christ because of what He did. It's His perfect work. And so now as a result... I get to read my Bible. I get to journal. I get to pray. I get to be kind to people. It's not a have-to Christianity. It's a get-to. And here's what uh, Paul writes to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 2. I think I'm actually going to go to verse 4 when I start instead of the verse I put on the screen as soon as I can find Ephesians. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ. How much of that has to do with what I can provide? That is all about what Jesus can do for me and has done for me. Now, positionally, as a result, I can be at rest in Christ. I know that whatever I bring to the table, he is going to make it so much better, but he's not looking up for me. I get to look up for him. He continues in verse 11 and says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Now, I just shared with you very passionately all about how it's not about me. And then verse 11 says, let us be diligent to enter the rest. If you're an old King James reader, it says, let us labor to enter the rest. I think the NIV says, let us strive to enter the rest. Now, you see, this is why I don't read Hebrews. It's so confusing. I thought I didn't have to work, and now i got to labor and strive. I'm so confused. Um, here's the best analogy I've heard about um, laboring or being diligent to enter the rest. Uh, this relationship we have with Christ is a lot like riding a bike. You guys remember what it was like at first, right? Riding your bike when you're a kid, uh, maybe you had, we didn't have the cool balance bike, so you just had to figure it out the hard way. You're hanging on to the handlebar, and you're trying not to fall, and you're wobbling, and you're holding your good, and the next thing you know, you fall, you're banging a knee and an elbow, and this is how we are, right? Like, what about this, God? What about that? Where's that in Scripture? We're, we're entering in, but man, it's a lot of work, right? It, there's some labor going on. And then there comes a point in time where all of a sudden you begin 
to start to get it. The, the, the balance begins to make sense. And if you're anything uh, like me, uh, this was me, uh, a little bit of story time. I'm going to take you back to 1988. Back to 1988, where the first ever KZ Popcorn Festival took place. This was a big deal back in KZ, Illinois, when it first started. I mean, it was way bigger than the big things are now. This was huge. Thousands of people came. And one of the most wonderful uh, acts that showed up was a group of BMX bikers called One Way. And these guys were awesome. They had the ramps. They had the bikes with the pegs. They were standing on the back. They were standing on the top. They were going up and down all around. I'm like, I got this. This is for me. I am a future BMX bike rider. And so I take my bike all the way back to Colorado Street, and I begin to work on my craft. I'm going to show everybody. I, and what happens is I get myself with one foot on the crossbar, getting ready to make my big stand move, and I get the second foot just started up for the seat when all of a sudden I heard a sound. It sort of sounded like when you take a pumpkin and you drop it off the porch, that thud. That was the sound of my skull hitting the pavement. It was lights out at that point in time. I got a big old goose egg, and I've fallen off the bike. I mean, it's a disaster. But here's the thing. I got back up. I got back on my bike. You see, the same is true for us. As we begin to grow in Christ, for many of us, we begin to think we sort of got it down, that maybe I see somebody else in a Bible study doing a trick where they're up on the seat, and they're like, hey, watch this. I'm like, I think I can do that. I've actually been in a Bible study as a new Christian where I saw the trick, and then I tried to pull it off. I almost destroyed an entire men's Bible study at Parkland Chapel, single-handedly by asking something stupid in the middle of it or trying to show off, and, and that happens to us. But here's the encouragement. Um, get up, get back on the bike. Because here now, at 43, uh, guess who's not standing on his bike going up and down Woodlawn? Not even considering it. Uh, I'm on my not-so-cool Trek bike, and I'm just cruising. And that's how we enter into this rest with Christ. That's how we diligently enter into this relationship. Yeah, at first, there's some bumps and some scratches and some bruises, but before long, uh, you're going to be able to cruise with Jesus. It's just me and him able to, to hang out together. And that becomes an example. Here's the beautiful part. That becomes an example to the people around you. They can look in and see that and go, wow, I, I can't wait until someday I can just cruise like that overweight dude going up and down Woodlawn. Like, wow, look at him go. So we continue in verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And so here now we have a description of God's word that we hold in our hand and, and a few different things that I wanted to point out, descriptive words about God's word. First note, it is living. And what you'll find is if you spend time in the Word, uh, it is like any other book in that it is uh, white pages with dark letters. But then it is unlike any other book that it is living and breathing and able to meet me in the moment right where I'm at. I'm amazed as God's Word can come to life and speak into my situation unlike any other book. Uh, secondly, note that it is uh, powerful. What Isaiah chapter 55 
verse, I'll start in verse 10, says, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent. God's word. Don't underestimate the power of just reading it. Just spending time reading it. Read it out loud. Read it to yourself. Because here's the thing. Uh, it will show up in your life. It will manifest in some way. Uh, a little uh, insider uh, to all of you. Every time I read God's word, it does not always speak to me profoundly. I am not every time, every day in my daily Bible reading, just getting my socks blown off. I'm not able to write some incredibly passionate uh, journal entry every single day. But just the idea of reading it, knowing that it's powerful. Now, I sit across from my wife. She appears to get something powerful every day. I'm like, I don't know how you got that out of First Chronicles and pottery. I thought the guy was just talking about pottery. I didn't know it somehow connected to me in my spiritual journey. But she's able to do that. I am, I'm not. And, and, and the thing is, though, that it's all inspired. God's word is completely inspired from beginning to end. It's not always inspiring, but it is always inspired. And so I want to encourage you to continue to just read because it is powerful. Second, or thirdly, note, it is sharp is what is mentioned. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It is our only offensive weapon that's listed in the full armor of God in Ephesians 6. And so to go into a battle against powers and principalities without the word of God, I am essentially going into battle completely unarmed. It's the reason to spend time in his word so that I can have an offensive weapon on my side, not to use it to slice people, but to slice powers and principalities of darkness. The enemy wants me to stop. And so I can use this as an offensive weapon. Uh, fourthly, notice with me, it is uh, piercing. What it says is, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow. It can get down and pierce even uh, margins that cannot be seen. Our soul and spirit, my soul is my psyche, what makes up me. But my spirit, the, the pneuma, is where I can actually connect with and relate to God. What Jesus says in John chapter 4 is God is spirit and we worship him in spirit and in truth. And so if I want to worship him in spirit, I must spiritually be able to connect with him. How can I tell the division between these? I cannot except through the word of God. Now, finally, notice with me that it is a discerner in verse 12 of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. I don't know about you, but I cannot trust my emotions. I can't. My emotions are up and down and I'm all around and I wonder what is real and what is not oftentimes. And what I find is the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of my heart. I can't trust my own intentions most of the time. But God's word, it, it's, it's like a scalpel. It literally goes in to those spots that are so narrow and it can carve out the things that are killing me. It can take away the, the cancers and the things that cause life to be choked out. And, and here's the result. Remember the context of this verse. It's all about rest. I can have rest and peace because I know the word. If I apply it into my life, it will cut out those things that want to take away from my rest. 
don't want to kill that in my life. I can't, I have all this anxiety. The word of God can actually go and address those things in my life. Now in verse 13, he continues and says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Vulnerability is something that is absolutely terrifying for almost all of us. I dare say probably all of us. To be truly, completely vulnerable. And, and yet what I get in my head is that if people really knew me, uh, they would reject me. If they knew this about me or this that I have done in my past or this that I have uh, thought about doing, if they knew me, the real me, then uh, they would surely reject me. And so as a result, we tend to create uh, personas and we put on a facade and we do all these things. But what you realize quickly is those things have to be maintained. Now I have to maintain this persona, which leads me to uh, no rest. I'm exhausted because I'm not able to be vulnerable because of a uh, persona I've created to protect myself from being vulnerable with others. Here's the beautiful thing and the place to start. Christ knows all that. Jesus isn't surprised. Be willing to be vulnerable with him first and then let that grow as you're able to be real with others. He knows every single inadequacy, failure, unbelief that you have had, that you will have, that you continue to deal with. And here's the beautiful part about that. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. This is definitely highlighter worthy if you've not already highlighted it in your Bible. What Paul says is, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That this is God's love in our life. That while you were in your absolute worst, he gave his absolute best. That while we were still sinners, he died. In the middle of all these things, we think we have to put a, a facade on so nobody knows. Jesus said, yeah, I died for that. <laughs> I gave my life for that. I've already taken care of that and I've taken it all the way. It's what it looks like to be able to eternally rest in Christ Jesus. That I can be me. I can be real. Here I am, Lord. All my flaws and all my failures have your way with me. Now, thankfully, he doesn't end there. We continue in verse 14. He says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. You see, what happens is fear and doubt cause me to only focus on my insufficiencies and I completely miss out on the total and entire sufficiency of Jesus. He is completely and in every way sufficient. And the beautiful part is, as I focus on him and I think, well, if he just knew how tempted I was with this or what I've had to deal with, how is it he can take care of this? Well, the reality is he was tempted. Just as we are tempted in all points is what scripture says, not in every temptation. Because immediately, if you're like me, I'm like, he didn't even have the cell phone. This thing's 5G. There was no 5G in Israel 2,000 years ago. I got temptations. It doesn't say that in every way he was tempted, but in all points. What John says is here's, here's all the temptations that are common to man. 
1 John chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. There's what you can boil every single temptation down to. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. I want to feel good. I want to look good. I want to be good. And none of these three things are foreign to Jesus. I won't go back to Matthew chapter 4, but you can go back there and notice with me, Satan tempted him in each of these three ways. In all ways, he was tempted. And by the way, Satan didn't stop there. We're told in Matthew 4, he left until a a better time or a more appropriate time. He was going to come back. He's going to circle back and hit these things again. And so he can relate to our temptations. He had temptations that were real to him. I've got some that are real to me, but he can relate. But what's even better is um, he can relate, yet he did it without sin. He was able to accomplish all this and yet do it without sin, which makes him a perfect high priest and a perfect sacrifice. You see, for the high priest that would go in and present the sacrifice year after year, uh, there was an issue with that because they were a man with sin. And so the offering was always imperfect because it was offered by one who was not perfect. But here's Jesus entering into the Holy of Holies, and he is making a propitiation is what we looked at in chapter 2. The payment that turns away wrath. He's making an offering for you and I, yet he's doing it from a sin-free state. And guess what else? He's the offering. He's offering himself on our behalf. The blood of Christ is what God sees when he looks at me. He doesn't see me in all my failures. Beautiful promise. And so he can sympathize with me, but he's also holy enough to represent me. Now as we head down the home stretch here in verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So if you can believe this, if you can believe all that what we've just talked about, here's the reality. You now have access to go to the throne of grace. You may obtain mercy and grace. What is mercy? But it is not getting what I do deserve. And what is grace? But it is getting what I do not deserve. And so as a result of the work of Christ, I may obtain mercy and in grace. As I was studying this week, the, the word may obtain, I, I looked that up in my little uh, lexicon, and what it is is the word uh, lambano. It's actually a one word. And the word, the synonyms that go along with it are to take hold of, to catch, or to marry. You understand that we were in this uh, marriage relationship with God until sin entered the scene. We were connected with him in spirit and in truth. But as as sin entered, so did separation, so did death. But through Jesus Christ, our high priest, the one who is holy enough to go into the holy of holies and enter into that scene to offer up sacrifice, that what took place is the veil that separated the holy of holies from everybody else in the nation. This 18-inch thick curtain, it tore from uh, top to bottom. And now you and I have access. We now have the ability to enter back into a, a marriage relationship. 
And if you think about this, this idea of a marriage relationship, it's one of pursuit and one of vulnerability and one of passion and one of love and care and affection. And for many of us, especially us guys, we would stop at no uh, thing to be able to obtain the bride that we wanted, right? For some of us, we even lied. Some of you lied a lot about who you were, who you weren't, right? You covered up all kinds of things like, I want to look really good. Otherwise, she's never going to say I do. And so uh, here's Christ. And here's the picture. He didn't lie. He didn't have to cover anything up. But he pursued us. He so pursued you and I that he would go to the lengths of going to the cross so that he could be married to us, connected with us for all of eternity so that we could receive mercy and grace so that we may obtain, be married to mercy and grace. And as a result, we now have access to the very throne room of God. We have access now to the throne, this place that we were never allowed to enter into. But for us, lots of times we have in our mind, what if, what if God's busy? Surely he doesn't want to hear from me if he's busy. For any of you uh, parents in the room, what you know is sometimes you just need a break from your kids, right? Sometimes you just need a break to get away. And where do you always go, especially you moms, if you just need a break? Dads too. Where do you hide? The bathroom, right? Like you all are sneaking away to the bathroom. I just need a few minutes. And if your kids are anything like my kids, here's how they operate. Mom. 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 Yes. She always answers with grace. By the way, I never answer with grace. I'm like, get out. But here's the thing. For God, he is never not wanting us to come to him in our time of need. He is so much better than me as a parent for sure, but he is always welcoming us no matter where he is or what he is in the middle of. What this verse tells me is that I may find grace to help in time of need. When I need him, when I'm heartbroken, when I'm decimated because Lots of times I put my trust in this thing that was going to fail me, and I come back to my father and say, Lord, I need you right now. He is always ready to give grace, always ready to offer up mercy. And all that is thanks to King Jesus. And so, Father, we thank you, and we praise you for always being there for us in our time of need. Thank you for being so much better than this picture that we often are where we, we don't want to be available and we want to hide or we want to not answer to the needs of our children. For you to always be ready and willing and able to answer the call. Thank you, Lord, for giving us access to the throne of grace. Thank you, Lord, that we now may obtain, we may be married to you in mercy and in grace because you pursued us. God, I'm blown away by the way you pursue us so recklessly at times, abandoning all logic and just saying, I want you back as my son, my daughter, my bride. Thank you, Father, for the way you come after us. Thank you, Lord, for not giving up on us. Father, would you just continue to impress that upon our hearts as we get the opportunity to enter into your rest practically and positionally.
and for all of eternity. In Jesus' name.